So I want to talk to you guys about Sing and Dog Double Reads. Sing and Dog Double Reads is an online double read shop and one of the largest suppliers of high quality and affordable professional and student reads for oboe and bassoon in the USA. Visit them at www.singindog.com to see all of their products and you'll be glad you did. That's Sing and Dog Double Reads. Hey bassoonists, are you looking to ramp up your reed making? Well, Barton Kane has the solution for you. They offer over 60 variations of precision gouged, shaped, and profiled bassoon cane. Use coupon code free shipping for orders over $150. This includes international orders. Go shop now at www.bartoncane.com. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish, a podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. Hey, this is Galit. And this is Jackie. And we're looking into each other's eyes. Staring lovingly. <laughs> <laughs> we're in the same place again, and it's awesome. And if we sounded the same before, we probably sound even more the same now. <laughs> We've been morphing, marinating in each, in each other. In each other's glow. Yes. So we're in Wisconsin for Driftless Wind mini tour mm-hmm. around the southern part of the state. We are in Madison. Today we have two performances. Mm-hmm. We are just on a radio show and we're about to go play a recital at UW Platteville mm-hmm. in a little bit. And then I'm hitting the road. It's going to be a long day. You're crazy. Two chamber concerts plus a seven hour drive. I've got a lot of podcasts on the queue. <laughs> I was going to say, turn those podcasts on and go. <laughs> <laughs> but for the dish today, we were thinking that we don't really, I mean, I guess we do talk about us a little bit, but Double Read Dish isn't so much about Galita and Jackie. It's about, you know, these great guests that we get to talk to and geek out with and stuff. So we opened it up for questions that you guys might have for us. And we got some really great, great questions. Yeah, definitely. Um, the one I want to start with is a question about how to get a better sound specifically on the oboe. Um, it has it's not anything to do with us personally, but I thought it was a really good question. Well, we're here for advice. You know, ask us anything includes advice. Mm -hmm. And the question is, um, I've been playing the oboe and English horn for almost three years now, but I wish I could get a better sound. How can I improve my sound? Do you have any tips? And this is obviously a really complicated answer. It could, it just depends on what your setup is and um, what you personally the challenge that the challenges that you personally have but the general advice that I like to give about sound is sound is very much related to your read Mm -hmm. so if you have a read that is not built to make a good sound then you're not going to have a good sound no matter what kind of techniques that you try Mm -hmm. so I'm not sure how old this person is I'm not sure if they're in high school or in college if you're in high school and you buy reads and you hate your sound, 
um, maybe try a different kind of reed. Mm -hmm. If you are making your own reeds and you hate your sound, I would consult with your teacher and see changing your reed style is a little bit complicated. Generally, you only need to change one thing at a time and try it for a while. Um, it could be the tip is too thin, so you're getting a really bright, buzzy sound. It could be that um, the, the reed is too thick, so there's not enough sound, or it, it sounds a little bit stuffy. Um, it could be you need a wider shape or a narrower shape. It, there's a lot of experimentation that goes into reed making, and um, that is like a dissertation. <laughs> yeah, but there are a lot of resources out there. There are a ton of books. There are a ton of, you know, if you don't want to read a book, Nancy Ambrose King has her read making iBook mm -hmm. that you can go on and see videos of how she does things. And there are a ton of other resources. That's just the first one that popped into my head. Right. Um, in terms of sound concept, um, your idea of what your sound is in your head is just as important as what your read is able to do. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. So if you have a read that is balanced and works, um, but you don't have a clear idea of what you want to sound like, then that can be a problem. So figure out whose sound you like. Go into a deep dive on recordings and you know YouTube and find those really amazing players that you love 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 their sound and see if you can start experimenting about how to mimic that quality and the longer you uh, give the the more you can do that the more you develop that um, concept in your mind of what a good sound is and that's a really great way to improve I once also got the advice of encouraging me to go beyond the adjective good because that's oh, very that's subjective. Mm -hmm. um, have other ways that you can describe your concept of your tone that you're striving for. Chocolatey. Yeah. Effervescent. More specific. Yeah. Because good and bad, that's not always such a great barometer. It's a little too simplistic. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Do you have anything else? No. Yeah. <laughs> Here, I'll do our next question. Okay. So this was submitted to our email. This is from, dear listener, please forgive me if I don't say your name perfectly, Bodo Kinland. Mm -hmm. um, and they ask, well, hopefully they'll be forgiving because they put at the end, my English might not be perfect. Please uh, understand. <laughs> so, Bodil, please understand. We're so sorry if we're massacring your name. Yes. Um, what has been the thing you've struggled with the most in learning to play the bassoon or oboe? How did you overcome it? And what made you finally understand how to do it? Or are you still struggling with it? And the first thing that came to my mind when I read this question was the path that I've been on in the mental and emotional aspect of being a performer which I didn't deal with for a long time because I didn't have the debilitating anxiety that some people describe. I didn't shake uncontrollably. I didn't have to deal with huge physical symptoms. And so I think I let that lead me to believe I didn't have to deal with the mental or emotional symptoms, mm -hmm. um, which ended up being very sabotaging. And about, it was actually just about a month after we started the podcast, I decided I was going to conquer this stuff. And I read back to back The Big Leap 
and the talent code. Mm. And it was like the big leap helped change my mind. And then the talent code helped the practice to reflect how I was changing my mind. And then I would put along with that the Don Green book Mm -hmm. that I read recently. And um, have I overcome it? No. Am I closer? Yes. And am I proud of myself for every step closer? Yes. I mean, Don Green says you don't necessarily arrive, but you just put deposits in your courage bank. And so when you need them, you can withdraw from them. And um, so, yeah, my mind has been with like the self-doubt and how that can manifest itself in performance and that type of stuff. And it is still a journey, but those are some resources that and talking with other people Mm -hmm. in the podcast and off has been really helpful. So that was the thing that came to my mind. What do you think? Yeah, I just responding to what you said, I think it's really important to reflect on stuff like that because, I mean, you and I are both teachers and dealing with that in our own playing only can make us better teachers. True. And so if you have issues that are really prevalent and are taking a long time to address, I think that's okay because it just makes you a more multifaceted and deeper thinking player, which is something that we all aspire to be. Um, For me, it's been reads. I did not have a consistent pattern that I followed for every read every time for a long time. It was a real game changer once I did have that. So for me, my biggest struggle, I would say, is read making. I have always viewed myself as more of a musician and less of a machinist. Yeah. So <laughs> read making has always been a challenge. And I really benefited from a solid read making pattern, almost like a dressmaking pattern. So I do this at this measurement, and then I have my next measurement, and then I have my third measurement, and I do the same thing every single time. And once Mm -hmm. I had that routine, it really evened out my read consistency, and it pointed out the mistakes that I was making. Because if you do something different every single time, you don't know which variable has changed. So once I finally figured out to follow a pattern and just do, like following a recipe, X, then Y, then Z, then that has really helped me with my read making and then making small changes over long periods of time, depending on what oboe I'm playing, depending on what climate I'm living in, depending on if I'm playing an orchestra part or if I'm playing a chamber music part, um, has really, really helped with my read consistency and um, also prioritizing response, intonation, and then tone. So I'm not falling in love with a read that's ridiculously flat and I can't play in public. And then um, just making a ton, a ton, a ton of reads. Well, and following, making sure you're actually following the recipe, not just thinking you're following the recipe, because I will sometimes watch my students and they get caught up in gabbing and what they think they're scraping just this portion of the read and all of a sudden the swipes get real big Mm -hmm. or they lose count Mm -hmm. or you know so making sure to carefully follow the recipe in addition to having the recipe be as unemotional about it as you can has really helped me a lot booyah yes um so we also got a question from ryan reynolds shout out ryan from the actor deadpool sent us a question Jackie. Blake Lively's husband? <laughs> oh, we're big time, you guys. 
Ryan, forgive me. No, I couldn't resist. It's the other famous Ryan Reynolds. The other Ryan Reynolds. <laughs> That's Miami even University better. In Ohio. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't resist. Forgive me. So Ryan's question is, what were the oboe and bassoon recordings that inspired you early on in your development? And I had two. In high school, I listened on repeat all the time, Alan Vogel's Oboe Obsession and John Mack Oboe. I listened to those all the time. So it was an Oboe Obsession. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) What about yours? Mine was, oh, and this took me back. You know, this got Mm -hmm. me thinking about uh, that period of time. But I was obsessed with Frank Morelli's recording of the Mozart Concerto with the Orpheus Chamber Orchestra. Nice. That was on repeat. And actually thinking of this reminded me, um, I remember Dr. Ruggiero told me a story of when he was just kind of coming of age bassoon-wise. He listened to the Leonard Sherrill recording of the Mozart so much on LP that the needle went through, like it started to eat through the vinyl. Um, We've got another question from Emily, and I'm going to ask you, Jackie. Okay. What's your favorite thread color to tie or wrap roots with? Well, I'm going to have a two-parter because ever since we had Gustavo Nunez on, I have been experimenting with the no-wrap four-wire. How's that working for you? I'm liking it Mm -hmm. so far. Um, So I'm not wrapping reeds, but I am making some real use of glitter nail polish in the absence of thread. Get it. But when I do use thread, it is the hot pink nylon thread that Midwest Musical Imports sells. I'm just shaking my head. It's a good luck color. No, it's a terrible luck color. For me, <laughs> it is a good luck color. Every read I make on hot pink thread is cursed. Really? Yes. I can't play it. So definitely not hot pink for me. Maybe um, it's only got good bassoon mojo. Probably. <laughs> My good luck color has been purple lately, so I've been tying a lot of purple. So now we're coming to you from the future or the the past when you're listening to it. Fast forward one week. <laughs> yeah, we are now no longer together. It's so sad. But um, we got this great question from Dylan on Instagram and we just had to come back and um, add it on to our dish. Yes. So I'll go ahead and read it. He asks very simply, what inspired you to to create the podcast? Do you want to? tell them how we came to this point? Sure. So I had been kicking around this idea of like doing sort of an interview series. I had, I was like, I really want something to be available for anybody who just has access to the internet because a lot of the time, like the people who have the most access to resources as middle and high school students are the people who live near major metropolitan areas. Mm -hmm. And I was like, what about that really talented kid who lives in the middle of nowhere and doesn't have access to anything? Like if I were that person, I would be so excited about having like an internet resource available to me where I get to hear what some of the best people in the business have to say about what I want to do. And you and I kind of not related, but as we became friends, we discovered that we both love the medium of podcasts and we often would like Mm -hmm. share shows. Oh, I discovered this show. You have to listen to it. And even though we both have podcasts that we listen to that don't overlap, I would say throughout our friendship, there's always been 
anywhere from two to five shows that overlap, uh-huh. that it is a central part of our friendship to talk about what we listen to, just kind of like people who watch the same television shows, only for us, podcast was a really common ground that we had. And so I sort of like beta tested this idea and it didn't really work and I was like talking to you about it and you were like oh my god we need to do this together we need to do a double read podcast and I was like I'm on board let's do it (laughs) yeah because I was very worried well because you and I had always kind of kicked around the idea that we should do a podcast and originally it was like not even well, it yeah. wasn't serious. It was just like, ha ha, we should record our band or wouldn't it be cool if we yeah. had one? And it was never like a real <laughs> thing. And I remember when you were kind of trying out this beta test, I was um, driving out to the CMS National Conference and talking to my husband, Chris. And I said, you know, it'd be really cool if we could kind of put her idea and our jokes about a podcast together. But who really has the time? It would be such a strain on the resources and Chris, who actually also loves podcasts, was like, "Not really." From what I understand, once you figure it out, it's kind of lather, rinse, repeat, right? Like you don't have to do one two times a week. Do it where it fits your schedule. And I was like, "Really?" And he was like, "I think you guys should totally do it." And so then I started texting you and was like, "When we're in Santa Fe, we're gonna figure this out." And da 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 da, and. It just kind of all happened very quickly. And I remember in Santa Fe, us workshopping this and then saying, if we don't do it, we're not, it's not going to happen. And so we decided in late October on a launch date of December 1st. Yes, I remember that. Not knowing remotely how... We were going to go about doing this. And it was just like... We had no idea about the technology. We mm-hmm. had no idea about the structure or anything. And it was just like, you have three weeks to figure it out. And I was like, listen, I knew Andrew Brady when he was a tiny tot. Um, we had a good relationship. <laughs> I think I can pressure him into feeling like he owes me a favor. And I was right. <laughs> Shout out to Andrew Brady, who took a complete leap of faith. The biggest shout out to Andrew Brady. I recorded that interview in a Starbucks parking lot in my car. Yeah. And in the beginning, we were like, well, we don't know what program will work best. And so our we had like a trial where it added space. Um, or it overlapped the voices. And so we had to be like, Andrew, count three Mississippis before you answer the question. (laughs) It was really interesting. But hey, here we are, you know, look at us now. Oh, man. Like now I feel so confident about it. But those first few episodes, I remember being like, Oh, so self-conscious. I don't even know. We would like re-record the dumbest stuff. (laughs) Yes. So self-aware. Oh, man. But yeah, that's the... The origin story. Oh, this made me so happy to go back and think about how it all began. If you're a bassoonist who needs great quality reads, look no farther than Go Bassoon. Handcrafted by Lee Miller Munoz, these reads are both high quality and affordable. She also makes contrabassoon reads. You can find Go Bassoon at www.gobassoon.com. Whether you're an oboist or a bassoonist, everyone is on the lookout for a great 
Read Knife. And good news, Genda Industries is making the Read Knife great again with the Student Read Knife by Genda. Genda Industries is known for its amazing quality and service in the double read world, and in a world where the term student quality associates with cheap and disposable, Genda Industries is winning by making the best student read knife ever. The student read knife features a tapered handle that will fit any hand size as you grow, a high quality stainless steel blade that won't rust, and it's actually sharpened, you guys. It's ready for use right out of the box. It's designed to be used when learning how to sharpen. And most importantly, since it's a gender read knife, it is 100% supported by Genda. Plain and simple, the student read knife by Genda is the knife you'll want as you start your read making and adjusting journey. Add the code DRDGENDA, that's all capitals, no spaces, at checkout, and get 10% off any gender read knife, maintenance kit, read knife, sharpening book, cutting stone, or read tool roll. Visit them now at gendaindustries.com. Oh, and they're much more than just read knives. We are delighted to welcome to the podcast Nicolasa Custer, Associate Professor of Bassoon at the University of the Pacific Conservatory of Music. Welcome, Nick. Hi, it's so great to be talking to you too. I love to start by asking our guests to tell us how they got to their instrument in the first place. So could you tell us how you got started on the bassoon? It's really funny because I just got back from my um, 30th <clears throat> high school reunion and um, talked with people a lot about this because band, right? Band um, is a great thing. I'm so grateful that I was able to be in band in high school. I grew up in Panama and um, my parents, my dad is, was a missionary there. And in band, I played the trombone. And one day, my mom took me to a concert at the National Theater in Panama. And I heard the bassoon. It was played by this guy, Jeff Marchand. I've never met him. But that day changed my life. He played the Saranda Estas Sete Notas by Villalobos. And I didn't even remember what the name of the piece was, but I did remember that melody which is basically a scale, right? <laughs> <laughs> but at the time, you know, it was just, it was the most magical moment in my life because I went back to my band director and said, I want to play the bassoon. And he, he was uh, flummoxed. <laughs> <laughs> he just sort of shrugged and was like, oh, okay, and found an old bassoon in the closet. There were no other bassoonists. I'd never, you know, really seen one close up. And I proceeded to set it on a stack of books because I didn't have a seat strap and didn't know really <laughs> that I was supposed to have one. <laughs> yeah, and my dad went and got a, a reed from a store in the big city. And um, that was it. I started playing bassoon. Could you talk to us a little bit about your education? thing is that it was like such a, a series of events there was so I, I look back on it and I think how did this happen you know I, I'm living in Panama on the Atlantic coast which is far away from any kind of you know the the symphonies hours away the conservatories hours away um and there, were, there was this high school kid there Catherine Stockwell she now lives in Portugal she was studying at Interlochen and so she would come back on her vacations and give me little lessons and then I would go to this um, music camp uh, and met Leila Zamora there. She was the teacher because she, she was the principal of the Costa Rica National Symphony. And so she was the teacher at this camp. 
So that was incredible to have the, the great fortune of meet, meeting her in that moment. And then there was this retired, um, well, he had, he had gone to USC to study bassoon, but he was now a preacher at a church. And my mom found out that he had played the bassoon. So she got me in with lessons with him. And then my high school counselor handed me this catalog for Oberlin um, as part of an assignment in an English class to apply to university. So I, that was the only school I applied to. So I get to Oberlin. And it's Bill Winstead is there as the, you know, interim teacher. And Kristen Wolf Jensen was assigned to me as my secondary. Um, I was a secondary bassoon student. I wasn't in the conservatory. So there I am studying with Kristen Wolf Jensen, who we all know. Um, she was a senior music education major. And all these little steps happened. I have no idea how. I mean, I just feel like um, just lucky lucky serendipity, like the people you meet and where they lead you, you know? Mm -hmm. So I was at, I studied with Kristen for a semester and she said, wasn't it your plan to audition for the conservatory? And I, by then was a little bit, um, you know, I was intimidated by everybody else. I said, really? I don't know. And she said, yeah, go for it. <laughs> so I did. <laughs> and, and William Winstead, you know, said, okay, you know, open the door. And then George Sakakini uh, was the professor the next year. So he needed to build a studio, so he was able to spend a lot of time uh, working with me and catching me up. Um, and so I got a double degree from Oberlin. Could you talk to us about embarking on your professional journey? I had in my mind from an early age that I wanted to be well-known in my field. And that was decided well before I even knew what the bassoon was. <laughs> so I'm, <laughs> I'm kind of lucky that I picked the bassoon after all, because, you know, to be well known in the field of bassoon is a lot easier than, you know, being a movie star or something. But, um, <laughs> True. Or a famous, or a famous <laughs> author, right? Um, but yeah, so I just wanted to be, I was driven by this desire to be excellent, I think, from the very beginning. And my idea was that I would be in an orchestra. And so I just um, set my sights on, on just practicing all the time and learning excerpts and just, I don't think I really knew what it would be, what it meant to have a career in music. I just knew that I was supposed to practice, you know, and I thought I was going to go play in the Panama National Symphony right after I graduated, that I would just go home and play there. But the job wasn't open when that time came. And so I, I was just kind of floating around, and I got a call from um, Northwestern, kind of like a recruitment call. They needed students, and a call from Wichita State. And I thought, oh, okay, good, I can do one of these things. And I ended up getting into um, the Civic Orchestra of Chicago, and instead of going to Northwestern, I went to DePaul. And <clears throat> while I was there, I just it just sort of reinforced my maybe innocent perspective that all I had to do was practice, right? <laughs> but I just kept taking orchestra auditions and thinking that was my path. So I won, um, I got a job in, in the Rhode Island um, Philharmonic, which was a, a piece of a freelance life in Boston, which I did for a couple years. And then I, um, and that was after I had a, a temporary position with the Virginia Symphony. And then I took the audition for the Tulsa Philharmonic, 
which at the time was a full-time orchestra, and I won second there. So everything was going according to plan, that I was going to be an orchestral player. And then um, the, or the Tulsa Philharmonic was kind of having difficulties. A lot of orchestras were at the time. And there was a job at Wichita State open, which was half professor at Wichita State and half um, principal of the Wichita Symphony. And so it was also where my ex had a job. So we were both trying to get to the same place, you know, two musicians trying to get a job in the same city. Mm -hmm. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <I> say wearily. <laughs> I know, I mean, it was so bizarre that that opened up. And at the time, I have to say, I wasn't sure it was the right move for me. You know, I thought maybe I was um, making a decision for a personal life, you know, because um, I just was so unsure about about the academic side. And when I got the Wichita State job, it turned out to be the best thing that ever happened to me. I just all of a sudden it's, I realized, wow, there's, you know, you can you can use a hall anytime you want to play recital. You can have colleagues to play chamber music with. You can, I mean, you have these students who are every day, you know, looking at you to to lead them and to coach them and to keep learning so that you have something to, to give. <laughs> it was so inspiring to, suddenly to be in that environment that I realized that, um, that the teaching side of things was, was deeply, deeply satisfying, which I didn't know before. I didn't know that until that moment. You know, because the world of music can kind of, I mean, you can think you know what you want or, or sort of be told what success is, right? So I stayed in Wichita for eight years. And then applied for um, a few jobs and got this job at the University of the Pacific, which is a full-time um, faculty position. So that's where I am now. I still get to play. I mean, I play in principal of Stockton Symphony, and I play uh, in the Monterey Symphony. I have a position there, and I sub. I'm playing um, Fourth of July concert with San Francisco Symphony. Yay. So what do you say? I love what you said about in this career, we often get told what success is. Mm -hmm. um, what do you say to students who have an idea of what success is, but they're not sure that that path is going to make them happy and anything else other than that very small idea of success is failure? Well, I think the key that I would want a student to know is that First of all, you don't know what the future looks like. And you want to be able to step through the doors that open. So you want to have the skills and the ability to, one, recognize the doors that open and the skills to step through them, right? And a lot of that is, is being curious and open to what you may not know. <laughs> I think that I would only... I do not want to tell a student ever... If they tell me they want to be the principal bassoonist of the New York Philharmonic, I will never tell them not to shoot for that. Um, because I think that my shooting for that is actually what got me what I have. Mm -hmm. And the irony is that, you know, I was, what, 19, 18, 19, 20, when I decided that would be the job that made me happiest, principal bassoonist of the New York Philharmonic. But you know what? It has never been open. <laughs> <laughs> So like the, the, 
the, the, the college kid in me who was just dreaming for the big time and knowing that's what success was like shooting for that is what got me ultimately what I have is which I consider success which is a you know satisfying life in music a family a house a, you know the means to to make a difference in the world you know well, that's maybe a really good transition to talk about the Meg Quigley Vivaldi competition and symposium, which you co-founded. And we have a couple questions about the organization, actually, but maybe we should start with how you, how the competition came to be. How did you get started? I can't believe it's been going on for over a decade now. So I, as part of my, you know, competitive nature, <laughs> Um, you know, like taking auditions and all that stuff sort of feeds into something that I really like anyway, right? Like, um, just trying to be as good as I can be. So I remember my teacher, George Sakini, handing me, um, a Beaujolais competition flyer in college. And he says, get this music and learn it. And I couldn't even play the Mildi Etude that was on the list. You know, I couldn't play it from start to finish, but I tried, Right. And so two years later, he, he says, here, do this again. <laughs> <laughs> and then I could play the high notes and I could play the, the music, right? But I couldn't get it organized. I couldn't get the pianist and set up the recording date. And I, you know, I couldn't make the deadline. So then two years later, here you go again. Now I have the skills a little bit more, you know, and so I take it really seriously and I send in my recording and of course I don't make it but two years later I did better right um and so I I, I really enjoyed that process of preparing for the gelée competition and when I was 30 or 31 like when I couldn't compete anymore and I truly believed you know there was a part of me that I knew I could be good enough to make the finals and I didn't um, I decided to go and actually hear the finals mm -hmm. and be there. And I had just gotten the Wichita State job. And so I knew that I was supposed to start going to, you know, conferences and stuff. And I was at the conference and I saw Kristen Wolf Jensen and I hadn't seen her in years. And it was really exciting to reconnect. And so we started hanging out and I went to the finals and I, I, I just couldn't, I just, there was just a disconnect in my mind. I just couldn't understand. There were five male judges and all the music was by men and the five male finalists. And I felt like I was confused. Let's put it that way. And so I, there was a bunch of conversations at that conference with a bunch of bassoonists about what was missing from a woman's earlier competitive experience that would have them not, um, be there, you know? And that was the beginning of the Meg Quigley Vivaldi competition. So I had, um, I had met someone who was really interested in supporting, um, me basically, uh, at the time it was, the idea was, oh, you should record all the Vivaldi and charity. And I was like, no. Would you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I said, would you consider um, funding the this thing that would give young women a chance to get experience before 
I mean, so they could still do the joy, you know, so they could, I don't know, have what, a, get a clue earlier, you know, like maybe if I had had a clue earlier, that kind of thing. And so that was it. And so there was a team, there was Kristen, um, there were people like George Sakini and Barry Steves who from the very beginning were, were saying, yes, yes, this is what our students need. And that's how it was begun. It was going to be called the Meg Quigley Vivaldi Award. Um, but then we changed it to competition just to kind of be in line with the world. And um, the symposium got added later on, of course. So that's what we're doing. We're creating artistic experience, the logistical experience of having to pull off something like that. The money, of course, is great. <laughs> and also just a little bit of awareness, you know, that our field, you know, we need we need more women in, in the leadership positions and we need more women just anywhere, everywhere. How does it feel that I mean, the work is never done, but it has worked. If you look at the winners and the participants of past years, many of them are extremely successful in the field now. To be able to stand back and take a look at a job, you know, indisputably well done, what is that feeling like? Well, it's really amazing to hear you say that. Um, I recently realized something about my work with Meg Quigley, which when it, when it started, I mean, I describe it as adding something new to the world, right? Instead of, instead of there's something wrong with the world, let's fix it. I really thought we should approach it more like, oh, no, you know, Vivaldi wrote these concertos for young women. Isn't that great? Let's celebrate that. Let's just add something to the world. And, and it was really truly in that spirit that we started. But in the last, you know, I don't know how many years I've, I've started to kind of get stuck in the, oh, there's something wrong. I have to fix it. And, and through that filter, it hasn't been as smooth sailing, let's say, for me, right? Mm -hmm. It sort of held me back from really realizing the greatness of, of, the, of the organization. And, um, and so recently I had this realization where I, I just got that, like, oh, my God, I, I lost the focus a little bit. You know, I was, no, there's nothing to fix. There's just something missing that we can keep adding to, right? And, uh, and so hearing you say that, it makes me realize that I haven't really thought of it that way for a while. You know, I was, I was, I was focusing more on, but, but, you know, the top paying jobs are still predominantly men. And, mm -hmm. but, you know, we still don't have pieces by women composers being played by major orchestras. And, but we still, you know, and I was kind of starting to go down that path, which is not very powerful. <laughs> but if you look at it, you know, the way you just said, like, it's true. After we started McQuigley, um, you know, a few years into it, suddenly there were women, more women finalists in the Jolet competition and people like you guys, you know, like getting these teaching jobs and making, you know, doing things like this. And I mean, it really has maybe, maybe, yeah, it's amazing to see the wave that it was part of a wave. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So what goals do you have for the Meg Quigley Vivaldi competition in the future? And um, how would you like to see it grow? So the future of the Meg Quigley Vivaldi competition and bassoon symposium, man, I would love to see more bigger prizes, more prizes. Um, fundraising is a big, big job, you know, um, being able to support more um, artists and competitors from faraway places would be amazing. Um, when we first started it, we had opened, you know, we thought, well, in the future we could add other instruments in. Um, 
that would be something to look at in the future. For this for coming up, the symposium is coming up in January of 19 at the Coburn School in LA. I would love to see our evening concerts be really um, a blend of of music performed, not just the same, you know, standard bassoon music that we hear. Hmm. So I'm hoping that that, I don't know, because we, we've done a really good job of creating this little world at the symposium. I don't know if you've ever experienced such love and um, such community because, you know, you're walking around, you see these concerts, it's 50-50, men and women performing. The judges, there's 10 judges, they're 50-50, men and women. Um, there's a huge range. We, we, we make sure that we feature people who are from, you know, the orchestral world, the chamber music world, the entrepreneurial world, the academic, you know, everything. We're making this really big effort to have ages represented and origins and, oh, you name it, you know. And so we have this little three-day experience that's just incredible. Uh, one thing we still haven't quite done is is our evening our the programming of our evening concerts is still still a lot of uh, not very balanced. I'll put it that way. <laughs> so that's what I'm hoping that we can start to work on. And also, I guess the future of Meg Quigley is more people involved. You know, the team can keep growing and and it can keep it can keep being what the world needs as the world needs it. You know. Shifting back to your bassoon hat, you mentioned that you have a family, you have your teaching job, you have your orchestral job. So I would love to ask you about how you approach work-life balance and also how you make the most of your practice time when navigating between all of these realms. Oh, yeah, that's the eternal question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is not impossible as I thought for the first part of my career to have a family and a career at the same time, it's not impossible. Um, but it is something that you have to work kind of hard to do. I try to like, when I get home, I park my phone so I can actually be present with my family. Try. Is the word. I try to get to school early enough so I can fit in the practicing and exercise yeah, I have no answer for that question because it does not always feel like I'm doing the work-life balance very well, you know? <laughs> I always think of that thing, you know, like a t someone told me once about the tightrope walker, right? That they're balancing on this little, you know, wire. And it looks like they're just walking across the wire and they're balancing. However, their experience of it is that they take a step and they're, swaying to the right and they're out of balance and so they just they, they look to see what's missing which is something a weight over on the left so they lower their umbrella on the left at which point they kind of start leaning over to the left but for a moment they're in balance right and then they say oh there's something out of whack what do i need and they put it in and they sway again to the right and that's how they go across their wire and so i look at life a little bit like that where those moments, you're looking for a constant state of balance, which is impossible because the balance is like the looking for it, the identifying what is missing and then putting it in, taking another step. So it's just being open to when I say, oh my goodness, I, I really, okay, I need to practice. Uh, how am I going to put that in my life? And then I create a 
a real plan, you know, like writing it into the schedule or, or taking out something that's been filling that time, you know, putting the practicing on it. Oh, I need to focus on health now a little bit more. What, what went out of whack there? And then figuring out what that is and how to put it in. And so is it always there, always at the same time? Sometimes. Sometimes it is. <laughs> I love that. I think that's a great metaphor. I love that. <laughs> I mean, to be, to be totally, like, to really um, get in touch with something, it's like, I said I did with my Quigley is I saw that, that I was at Wichita State and, um, you know, I was happy there in many ways, but I also had that dream that I said from the very beginning, which is I wanted to be known in my field, right? And I, and that was like, you know, I, I wasn't going to win. I wasn't winning the New York Phil principal, you know, and I was like, what can, what, what would be there that would have me feel fulfilled and known and, and that I could, you know, be, and that in a way was the, was the thing to put in place to, um, to, to add that sense of, of, um, of satisfaction, you know, mm-hmm. to like be involved in something that was going to give me more, you know, than just what I thought I didn't have. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, for a lot of people, performance anxiety comes into that picture. Like mm-hmm. they have the life or they're shooting for the life that they want, but they're often struggling with feelings of imposter syndrome or performance anxiety yeah. um, as they're trying to get there. So um, what is your advice for those people? <laughs> well, first of all, I would you will never catch me say the word that starts with an A, performance I call them performance sensations because the word anxiety, I should say, um, it just makes me anxious, you know, and I would rather be like excited or um, scared than anxious because all you need if you're fearful is a little bit of courage and um, and the excitement and it's the same physical sensations, right? Um, so I am one, like I don't even remember the first movement of the first piece I played on a recital in college. I mean, I, I shook so bad. I was like, like falling off the bassoon is what I used to call it. Um, like that would, that was the thing that I thought was killing me in my career was that I would fall off the bassoon. I mean, physically shaking so much that I would fall off. (laughs) My hands would just, um, so I've been thinking about this a lot. And I think the things that helped me the most was, first of all, just getting more experience, right? And just keep doing it, keep doing it, keep doing it. But also getting in touch with, um, just, I was going about it the wrong way. I was trying to prove something to people and I would be looking out at the, out at the audience pretending they weren't there, right? And um, in fact, I was coached to do that. Like look over the top of the heads of people, you know, pretend they're not there. But I think it, what really shifted for me was when I started realizing like, oh, wait, they are there, and I could be with them. I could actually be with people. I could actually um, play for someone and and not keep myself so separate. And so now when I go out on a stage, I actually take a second to actually see who's there and be present to why they're there and who they are. And um, And that's helped me get away from you know, trying to prove myself to people I don't even know that I'm trying to prove myself to. Does that make sense? (laughs) So I still have sensations for sure. Performance sensations are part of my life, Um, especially around speaking. The speaking from the stage thing is something that I'm I'm working on a lot. 
um, trying to work on transforming that. And I think it's the same, the same answer is, is, uh, is being vulnerable and open to who you're really with. What is the best read advice that you can give to us and our listeners? I have a lot of other interests in my life. So like I'm, I like to make things and spend time with people and travel. So read making has to fit into my life. I don't want my life to be around read making. Um, so I try to, I try to approach it in a really simple way and, um, and not get too crazy about it, work on it in moments and it treat it like it's not a personal thing. You know, like if a read's not working, it doesn't mean that I'm a bad person. (laughs) Um, so I practice, I often practice as I work through read making. I just mix it into the mix. It's not like I consciously say, now I'm going to make reads, you know, and this read will work. It's more like I, I have a process where I, I sit down, um, cut the tip off a read, take five minutes to get it to the next step, put it away, take another one, do the same thing. Five minutes of like scales or whatever. And then I might pick up a read that's already been in that stage and I call it the second script. And I put that in water and I just, spend five minutes taking that to the next script, next stage. And so I figured out a way that I can do that. And by the third time, it's a read that I can count on or break in. Um, and I can carry that around with me so I can do it as I travel or, I mean, you just got to have the patience to figure it out. I believe that it takes about five years from start to finish to actually feel like you can make two reads in a row. And it takes about maybe making 500 reads to get to that stage. So, what my advice to a young person is, is to just sit down and make reads for five years and make a lot of them. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, that's the eternal question. It's funny because at my high school reunion that I was just at, people who don't really know anything about the bassoon, they're just so surprised that you have to make reads. I, I I like to be around people like that to remind myself that, oh yeah, it's just a thing I do. You know, no big deal. <laughs> Do you have any tips for teaching or learning physical musical concepts like embouchure and vibrato? Okay, so vibrato is life in the sound. So I, I, I just always try to remind people that you want life in your sound. Sound has to move, always. So the vibrato is the life in the sound that moves. Embouchure, I, you know, I, was, I come from that line of, of Van Hosen. Um, wisdom where your embouchure is flexible and loose and round and and simple like I really think that we're athletes of the little muscles right and that and an athlete would train to have the simplest most efficient movements possible so like no movement at all just keep a steady O and let your air and your support do all the work that's my those are my words of wisdom about vibrato and embouchure um (laughs) I just think if we look at, if we, when we're practicing, if we just constantly remind ourselves that we're athletes, what would an athlete do to train? You know, what would they be doing? I've, and as, and as a, a normal human being who, you know, I, I've dabbled, I've run. So I've looked at how to get to be a better runner. And usually everything they tell me to be a better runner, I just apply to the bassoon. Um, swimming, you know, I was, I joined master's swimming and everything they told me about how to be a better swimmer, I just applied to the bassoon. I just did a yoga class with this um, a new yoga instructor. Everything out of man's mouth was, I basically can apply to the bassoon. 
you know? So it's just being open and curious, you know, open and curious. Can you tell us about a memorable moment from a past performance? Some have taken this to the embarrassing memory. (laughs) Some have done glorified memories. I had so much fun playing at the IDRS conference in 2013. I played the Zwilla Concerto. Okay. And what, what I find, what I remember the most was how much fun I had. And it was linked to my decision to not wear heels. Okay. Now this is a big deal because up until that moment, I was convinced I had to wear heels to feel good on stage. Right. Um, but I had just read um, Born to Run, you know, about running barefoot. And I had just started running barefoot. And, and I made this realization that, my God, I mean, I'm trying to play this, you know, instrument, blowing through eight feet of tube. And I have to do this in front of all these people. And I'm going to be in heels? Like, I just finally got it, you know. So it was this big deal for me to 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 say okay i'm i'm going to i'm going to do this and so i walked out on stage i was the most comfortable i've ever been and uh just like right there on flats and i'll never forget that day because that was that was it i realized okay all of my uh, performance sensations now i don't have now i don't have to deal with uh, that teetering feeling It's interesting that you say that because I always feel a lot of times I don't play in heels because I feel like it exaggerates my performance sensations, <laughs> but I've always felt like that's something that I need to overcome. Like, oh, Jackie, if you had a better handle of your mental mm-hmm. and emotional stuff when performing. So that is so comforting to hear you say that. I feel liberated to stand in my five foot glory. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. No, I used to say, I used to say, oh, I need the heels to feel powerful, you know, but then I started realizing why do we need to feel powerful with heels? Right. I mean, it actually puts you off your center and your balance, right? Unless you wear them all day, every day and like even run marathons in them. So yeah, that was a memorable experience because it was, it felt like liberation. And ever since then I've, have not walked out of stage with a heel. It's changed my life, basically, to be willing to let that go. Um, and I don't think people left saying, oh, that Nicolasa Custer, you know, she's so short. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I have so many memorable. I, I love that I've been able to travel. I mean, that was, you know, playing concerts in Italy and old churches and all over the world. Um, I would be hard-pressed to find an experience that would be the most memorable. Um, I've, I've had an amazing run. Let's put it that way. I just feel like I've lived, my bassoon has taken me so, so many places, met so many people, played so much music. Um, it's all something that I'm really extremely grateful for. I can tell you stories about the reed cracking, right? When I'm about to play the solo, things like that, but, (laughs) (laughs) yeah we'll leave that pain for another day (laughs) 
So I'd love to close by asking what advice do you have for a young musician who wants to have a career like yours? Well, first of all, I would hope that what they would want about my career is not like that it's, you know, that I have a position, a particular position or live in a particular place or have a particular set of circumstances. Um, but what I would hope is that they would want to have an experience where um, lots of opportunities arise and, and, um, and that it's a zigzag path um, that is a lot of adventure and fun. Because I do feel like that's my career has been that. It's a zigzag through a lot of different areas, you know. Um, and so my advice is, is uh, be present to, to every musical moment you have. Um, learn from every single person you meet. And um, share what you want with the world. Because if you share it, I mean, when I shared with, you know, when Krista and I sat there and shared with our friends what we wanted, people were excited to join us, you know. Um, so you have to share it with people. Absolutely. Thank you for joining us for this interview and all the young ladies listening, make sure to do the Meg Quigley Vivaldi competition in 2019. And also we're looking forward to seeing the bassoon community at the symposium at the Coburn school in LA in January. Absolutely. Thank you for coming on double read dish. Hey, thanks for having me. You guys are awesome. You can follow us on all of our social media on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and SoundCloud. And don't forget to join us next time where we will welcome Allison Teal, who is principal English horn with the BBC Symphony Orchestra, though she says cor anglais, but I get a little self-conscious about my non-English pronunciation. <laughs> and uh, yeah, enough of this nerd parade. All right, turn this off. Go make reads. <laughs>